We're uh, starting this morning with the second part of our series, which I've titled Strangers and Citizens from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 17. A major focus of 1 Peter has been that we are sojourners on earth. And uh, different versions use different language from strangers and aliens to exiles. But there's a sense that we are not permanent citizens here. Where we live on earth is not our permanent home. I'm sure uh, as we send missionaries overseas that that is something that they are particularly aware of when they find themselves in, in another country. They have to live their lives there as a temporary citizen with one purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them. That is not that different from us. And that's what uh, the author uh, Peter, one of the apostles, is making clear here. When it comes to our dual citizenship, how we are both citizens of heaven and citizens of the United States, at least for most of us, not all of us, there are many questions of what we should do as citizens which are not specifically answered in Scripture. I brought up some of these last week. Questions like, should we vote? Should we be writing letters to politicians? Should we protest? Should we post political things on Facebook? Should we boycott companies? Should we send our kids to public school, private school, home school? Those questions are not specifically answered in Scripture. But because Scripture doesn't give give specific answers, doesn't mean that God's Word hasn't given us enough guidance on how to please Him. I'm reminded as I was thinking about this topic of Wayne Grudem's definition of the sufficiency of Scripture. And this, this is coming from, from, from his systematic theology. And I'm going to read a couple quotes here because I think it gives a good background as we think about uh, what Scripture says with clarity. So here's how Wayne Grudem defines the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. And that's such a sweet definition for us. God's word has given us everything we need to know to obey him perfectly. You can think of 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Scripture tells us how we are to be pleasing to God. Now, Wayne Grudem goes on a little bit further. He talks about the sufficiency of scripture. Here's another quote. Sufficiency of scripture should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think about a particular doctrinal issue, or to do in a particular situation. And we are faced with many of those particular situations. Grudem continues, We should be encouraged that everything God wants to tell us about that question is to be found in Scripture. This doesn't mean that the Bible answers all the questions that we might think up, but it does mean that when we are facing a problem of genuine importance to our Christian life, we can approach Scripture with the confidence that from it, God will provide us with guidance for that problem. End quote. 
And that's a great way to think about Scripture. When we come to God's Word with questions, questions like, should I vote? Should I be politically engaged on Facebook? When we come to God's Word with these questions, we can be confident that God has told us what He wants us to know. Now, that doesn't mean that he gives us the, the specific answer to all those questions, but he told us what he wants us to, to, to know. So Grudem flushes this out a, a little bit more. With regard to living the Christian life, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or by, Im, or by implication. Nothing is sin that's not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. God's word has spoken with enough clarity that we can learn from scripture what sin is. So we know when we are disobeying God. Now, it might not say the specific children you need to pick up your room, but it says children obey your parents. So we know by implication of a very clear command that children are to clean their their rooms. Now, that has a flip side to it, and I'm going to end with these quotes from Grudem here in a second, but here's one more. The sufficiency of Scripture also tells us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. Okay, So that nothing is required. So that nothing is sin that Scripture doesn't specifically say is sin or implies, or nothing we have to do that is not commanded. So what Grudem is doing with his understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture is that Scripture is sufficient to let us know what we should do, how we can please God. Now, I'm setting up that background because it's going to help us transition as we think about what our responsibilities are as citizens. God's word is sufficient to let us know how we are to please God as citizens. We might have difficulty finding the answers to specific questions we can raise, but we have to look at it and say, what does God's word say? And that's what's so valuable about this passage from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 17. We're going to be able to raise questions that this passage doesn't specifically answer. But it does give with lots of clarity what we should and shouldn't do. We're going to have to be able to, and we can't do that all this morning, but as we study what the Bible says about government, about politics, about doing good, we can inform our discussion this morning with other scriptures. But what it does say is going to help us uh, know how we obey him and what disobedience would be. So this, this morning, we're going to focus on these principles that God has given us from 1 Peter, how we're to live as strangers and citizens, particularly in response to the government. So I'm going to read to you from 2 Peter 2, verses 11 to 17. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn. 2 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved... I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Let's pray. Father, you, uh, you, you know my heart, and uh, I have been humbled by this passage, and I'm humbled uh, by the complexity of the age in which we live, and even in this country in which we live, where we're given so many freedoms, uh, where we have so many respon- responsibilities, and we want to go to your word uh, to find clarity, uh, to know as much as you've said about these kinds of topics. And while we're not going to be able to study all of Scripture, Lord, we want to know what 1 Peter 1, 13-17 truly teaches, that we would know what obedience is and that we would know what sin is in response to the government. We pray, Father, for lots of wisdoms. We pray, Father, uh, for teachable hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, really be giving me uh, a discernment as I've studied your word, and I want to apply it with caution, uh, not going beyond Scripture, uh, but also bringing it to uh, this world today, nearly 2,000 years after Peter wrote. So we just pray for lots of of wisdom, and we pray that you would uh, be uh, doing what the purpose here is, uh, that uh, you would be saving Gentiles who would worship you on the day of visitation. And so use the way that we live in our public lives as a platform for the gospel that would bring honor uh, to you and not distract from you. In Jesus' name, amen. My uh, proposition this morning is the same as last time we were in in 1 Peter. It was two weeks ago. We're going to see four principles which will guide how God's people relate to the government so that those without God will observe our behavior and become his worshipers. And you might have sensed that that, that's driving this sermon. We see it at the second half of verse 12. Or or, or let's just look at all of verse 12. Uh, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's our goal here. We want to see those who don't know Christ, he referred to as the Gentiles, glorifying God on the day of visitation. When he returns to judge humans, we want to know that other Gentiles, the lost people around us, have become our brothers and sisters in Christ and are glorifying God on the day that he returns uh, because they have seen our excellent behavior and that acts as a testimony uh, to our proclamation of Jesus Christ. So we looked at the first two principles last time. We're going to look at the second two principles this morning. Uh, for, for sake of review, I have them in your notes there. The first principle was, was from verses 13 and 14, and it's to submit to authorities. Submit to authorities. We saw the command is that we need to submit ourselves. The motivation, it was for the Lord's sake, and the extent, that is, to every human, human in, institution whether to king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him. We also looked at biblical examples, both from the Old and New Testament, of when we shouldn't submit to authorities. And we looked at the principle of do not submit to authorities when doing so requires you to disobey God. So don't submit to authorities when doing so requires you to disobey God. And probably most of us uh, haven't had to make that decision yet. Our second principle was, do good because you want Christ to be honored. And the, in verse 15, kind of starts with the opposite. For such is the will of God, but that, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And it's really about, as, as people slander us as we represent Christ, as they slander the gospel, to silence them because of the good that we do. Uh, 
the New American Standard translates this as doing right, which gives it the idea of, of being law-abiding or not breaking laws. But instead, really, the focus is on doing good, the kind of good which goes beyond what's expected. Now, of course, all of us don't have, have maybe the amount of time it would, it would take, but, but I, was, I was describing it to Sam. It's kind of like being the person in your neighborhood or workplace or city that would get the good neighbor award. Now, that doesn't mean that all of you have the time and bandwidth in your lives to say, I'm going to get the good neighbor award. But it would be that kind of, uh, of goodness, that kind of concern for, 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 for your neighbors, that if there was a good neighbor award... Even though you've told your neighbors that you're very concerned for their souls, and even though you've told them that the only way they could be saved is through Jesus Christ, they would still consider you for this good neighbor award because of your good deeds. That is how uh, we silence the talk of foolish men. We do good because we want Christ to be honored. That leads us this morning to our third principle. It's there in your notes for you if you have the page. Behave excellently because you've been freed from sin and belong to God. Behave excellently because you've been freed from sin and belong to God. Now, there's three parallel phrases in verse 16. And you're not really going to see them in in your versions because of how they are translated. Each of these three phrases begin with... uh, the word as. As free men, as those who don't use their freedom as a covering for evil, and as slaves of God. Now, our, our English versions want to smooth this, this out. So, so the New American Standard has act as free men. But if you have your New American Standard Bible, you see it's in italics there. They're adding an act, just as they later in the verse add and use. The ESV has live. And these versions make clear what is in the Greek, that, that there's kind of something missing here. Uh, I, I agree with, with, with commentaries that would go back to verse 13, to what the main verb of this section is, to, to submit ourselves. So the main command is to, to submit, excuse me. But, it, but it's also possible and we shouldn't separate it too much, that these, uh, that these phrases in verse 16 are also building us up and preparing us for verse 17. Our relationships with other, our honoring all people and loving the brotherhood, our fearing God and honoring the king. And so as I looked at what was passed in, in, uh, in submitting ourselves and looked at these relational phrases coming up in verse 17, I kind of have boiled them together as behave ex- excellently. Behave excellently. So there's three ways we are to behave ex- excellently. Excuse me. First is to act as free men or submit as free men. Now, Peter's audience were not all literally free. In fact, we're going to see as we get into our section next week, some of them were slaves. But they were all to submit as free men. Peter here speaks of the universal freedom of God's children, of those who belong to this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, people who have a freedom because of their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had heard Jesus himself speak of this freedom in John 8. Jesus was talking to those who were claiming to be his disciples 
And he says, truly, truly, I say to you in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Jesus continued, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And it's this freedom from sin that Peter is talking about when he calls them as free men. Freedom from slavery to sin and freedom for obedience to God. The commentator D.A. Carson writes, True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. I love that last part. It's genuine liberty. It's real freedom because doing what we ought now pleases us. Obeying God brings us joy. And we're going to talk more about that. The freedom that we have is through union with Christ. In Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And that is what happens through our union with Christ through faith, is that we have been freed from sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are free to obey. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18 continues. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So the question for you this morning is, have you been freed from sin? You have if Jesus Christ has given you new life. If you have turned in repentance from your sins and placed all your faith in him, if he is your only hope, you've been, slave, you've been freed from slavery to sin and, as we're going to see, have become a slave to God. You've been rescued from that slavery to sin. Now, Peter's already referred to them being freed, although he hasn't used this language of freedom and, 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 and slavery yet. But he talks about redemption, which is about, which is about being rescued from slavery. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, he describes what the price of our freedom was. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb and blemish and spotless, the blood of Christ. That was the price of our being released from slavery, the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verse 14, he talks about how we were what we were freed from. We are freed from our former lust and the ignorance we had. He says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in, in, in the ignorance in verse, one, uh, uh, verse 14 of chapter 1. talks about how we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are freed from darkness. We are freed from slavery to sin. We are freed from our former lust. We are new creatures in Christ if he has given us that new life through our faith in him. We are free to submit because our happiness is tied to obedience and not to our autonomy. We are free to submit because our happiness is tied to his sovereignty and not our self-rule. Because it is tied to his lordship and not to our lust. To his word and not to our way. The freedom which God's children have to please him is the freedom which ultimately matters. We are very thankful for the freedoms we have as Americans. But those are not the freedoms that ultimately matter. See, this is a freedom that's independent of citizenship, of social status, of ethnicity, of education, or even a freedom that's independent of imprisonment. 
The imprisoned Chinese saint has as much freedom as the American saint. The impoverished saint as much as the privileged saint. The black saint as much as the white saint and as much as every shade of saint in between those. God's people share this true freedom to obey God's laws through his spirit uniting us to his son. This is what true freedom is. So, submit as free men. We have the freedom to submit in happiness to man-made laws and ultimately to God, as we'll see. 1 Peter 2, 11, as he starts off this, this, this whole section talking about how we live in this world, he said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Tourists are notorious for getting themselves in trouble. Like Lee, like Lee Angela Ball, uh, some of you know about the UCLA student in China uh, who decided, probably because he was American, he could get away with shoplifting. Ultimately, it didn't work out horrible for him as President Trump uh, helped out. Tourists are notorious for law-breaking, or for doing foolish things. I had some, some fun reading uh, about the ridiculous things that tourists do, from carving their initials on the Great Wall of China. I mean, really, there's, there's no shortage of stories of foolish selfies or people in, in, in national parks doing insane things, like spraying themselves with bear spray, because that's supposed to keep away bears. Tourists do foolish things. They get themselves in troubles. We're, we're sojourners here. In a sense, I like that freedom. You have a certain freedom when you're a tourist in another country. Exchange students experience a certain freedom when they are here in America. They know that this isn't their lasting home. We are sojourners. But we shouldn't use that freedom as slaves of sin to satisfy our fleshly lust. Peter continues, and do, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, or literally, not as having freedom as a covering for evil. We could be tempted to misuse our freedom, to exploit it, to take advantage of our freedom. I'm free in Christ. We could do that by turning our heavenly citizenship into license to turn up our nose at our earthly neighbors, assuming we're better than those uh, around us because Christ has redeemed us. By turning our adoption as God's children into justification to not obey local laws, I serve a higher power. By turning, which is true, but that's not an excuse to break local laws. By turning our brotherhood with our brothers and sisters in Christ into an excuse to not do good to all men, which Paul says in the book of, 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 of Galatians, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. By turning God's truth into slogans, and maybe you've seen this on social media, turning God's truth into slogans that shame those who were lost like we once were. Being strangers and aliens doesn't give us an excuse to act like jerks. Peter makes clear, no amount of being marginalized is going to justify what he said we couldn't do in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. See, free speech doesn't make those things okay. 
We're not to succumb to sin because we have been freed from sin. Freedom leads to holiness and not haughtiness. Redemption doesn't make us rebels. Instead, we are to use that freedom, that redemption that God has purchased for us with the blood of Christ. And here's the third as, as bond slaves of God. Or ESV has living as servants of God. It's literally as slaves of God. Servant is too soft of a translation of this word, and yet we know slave has all kinds of baggage with it. Slave has the idea of an oppressive master you can't wait to be free of, rather than a master who's devoted to your good and one that you love. So that's why the New American Standard softens this as, as bond slaves or bond servants. A slave is, is still probably the best way to translate this. You can maybe qualify it. A slave that likes being a slave. See, a slave is owned by someone, and we are owned by Jesus Christ. A slave doesn't have rights, and we don't have rights. A slave is committed to the one that they serve. No one can serve two masters. God's people are to view themselves as God's slaves, as belonging to him. And that's the clear example of scripture. Peter described himself as a slave. Paul described himself as a slave. Timothy described himself as a slave. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus Christ, described themselves as slaves. In Revelation 1.1, John describes himself as a slave, but also the people's writing to his slaves. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves, and he sent to communicate it by his angel to his slave, John. Did you know there's slaves in heaven? Revelation 22, verse 3, there will, be, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him. Who are the slaves of God in heaven? We are. And that's good news to us. I know it sounds culturally really odd, but it's good news because of the goodness of our master. See, God makes us his slaves by redeeming us from sin. Romans 6, verses 17 and 19. I started in these verses earlier. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, the gospel. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, we were once slaves of the flesh, resulting in further lawlessness. It's all that sin leads to is more sin. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We are slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That's good news. We are slaves of God. Has the gospel liberated you from fearing slavery to God? Are you glad to be his slave? I don't want to make this too black and white, but it is part of your understanding of the gospel, part of you believing the gospel, is if you are not afraid of slavery to God. Now, that's something we have to fight against, right? Because we are still in the flesh. We know that our lusts wage war against us. 
But believing the gospel is believing that God is so good that you come to him knowing that he's a reward of those who diligently seek him. Knowing that he's going to welcome us into his presence saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Knowing that one day in his courts is better than thousands elsewhere. Knowing that the blessed man is the one who meditates on his law day and night. If the prospect of having God as your master still causes you fear, if you want to carve out a section of your life and say, this is mine, then maybe it's possible you haven't really believed. See, because believing the gospel, believing this good news, requires you to go him, to go to him and say, yes, Lord, you are a good master. Your commands are all perfect. To place all of our confidence... It, it is incompatible to trust him for our salvation, but not trust him to give us good commands. And so think about that with the commands that God has given you. He's a good master. The Great Commission is part of his being a good master. The call to make, good, make disciples is part of his being a good master. The call to do good is part of his being a good master. The call to discipline our children is part of his being a good master. His commands are not burdensome. So this, this is that, that belief we have to have. It's not just believing that Jesus could take our punishment. I mean, that's part of faith. But faith enough to believe and say, yes, Lord, you are going to make a wonderful master, and I'm following you the rest of my life. We are citizens of America, but we are slaves of God. We're not going to get audible orders from God regarding how we're going to specifically live in a representative democracy. Excuse me. Whom should we vote for? How should we express our free speech? Should we pursue public office? We're not going to get audible orders. We're going to get commands like do good. Or principles like we saw last week about seeking the welfare of those around us. Or these verses here about submitting to authorities. But whatever choice we make, we do so as his slave. His word has given us all that we need to know how to please him. So we go to him and say, Lord, I'm your slave. How do you want me to live in this country? What does your word have to say? And we're doing some of that. We're going to have to go on to other principles. But, but, but there's more searching that you can do. And there's probably more work we all need to do that I need to do to figure out what does it mean to please him in a representative uh, democracy. In ways, it seems not easier, but a little bit more straight uh, cut in an uh, empire like Rome. God has made clear that we are to Submit, which includes not just our actions, but also our attitudes. And that brings us to our fourth principle. Our third principle was that we are to behave excellently because you've been freed from sin and belong to God. We're also to respond properly toward everyone. Respond properly toward everyone. Verse 17 of chapter 2 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 
this uh, cluster of, of four commands is kind of two pairs. The first pair are social groups, people, and then brotherhood. The second pair are authorities, God and king. The first pair goes from, from, from broader to, to, to more specific. The second pair goes from divine to human. The external pair has to do with temporary relationships and the internal with, with eternal. It's really a, a, a tightly formed little series of four commands here. Let's look at the first one, to honor all people. To honor means to place a value on everyone. Whether they are wearing a, a, a hijab or a bindi, whether they are wearing a tie-dye or necktie, whether they are dressed as a hipster or in the hip-hop culture, regardless of what they do, whether they pour your coffee, whether they are outside weeding your garden, whether they pull you over while you are speeding, or whether they are the customer service agent that you are begging to lower your internet bill. Whether they are imprisoned or free, whether they are homeless or homeowners, whether they are modest or immodestly dressed, whether they are, are, are hetero or homosexual, whether they are Republicans or Democrats, whether they are Reformed or Arminian, regardless of their position on any number of issues, we are to honor all people. We do not honor them because of what they believe, what they teach, how much they make, what sins they have or haven't committed, but because they are created in God's image. We show honor by greeting them, by showing interest and by listening to them, by looking them in the eye, by being concerned for their souls, and then by declaring to them that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We show honor by remembering that we are like them in essential ways. And the only ways that we are not like them is because of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. That is the only difference between us and anyone else. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. In your public interactions, do you honor all men? Much wisdom could be gathered from Proverbs about what we should and shouldn't be saying. But it's impossible to talk about honoring without bringing up social media. And I know some of you aren't on social media. You've never been there, but some of you are. Uh, social media is increasingly used to shame, right? To, to, to really to shame for any number of, of positions or doctrines. In your pursuit of winning men to Christ, right, which is what we are here for, that they would glorify God on the day of visitation. As we proclaim the excellencies of God, are you honoring all men on social media? I know not all of you are there. If you're not there, your kids are or will be. And it applies to water cooler conversations. If someone wanders over your party line, you know, in, 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 into your comments on someone else's post. Or maybe they wander across your ethnic line or your doctrinal line. Do they feel hostility from you or are they honored by you? Or has the, the anonymity of social media liberated you from God's command to honor all men?
Are you in shaming battles of sound bites, memes, and one-liners? And I think that's a really good question. Are you in shaming battles of sound bites, memes, and one and one-liners? Because that's what Facebook and Twitter. That's there's not a lot of good reason discourse. Does the wickedness of other men justify you ignoring this command to honor? Again, 1 Peter 2.1 is why he's already said this. Putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Are you showing honor to those that God has honored with his image? Now we know that the fall has disfigured that image. It's disfigured that image for all of us. And only in God's grace to us through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are being restored into the image of his son. So does your rhetoric show respect for all men? It's, 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 it can be a lot of fun to think, oh, what can we say in response? I know people are, are, are enjoying writing conservative and liberal and all kinds of theological views, great memes. You know, the, the little pictures that go like, ooh, you, you, you got me there. But is that rhetoric, is that showing respect? So we need to honor all men. We need to love the brotherhood. Peter has already said what the priorities are for God's people. He said in 1 Peter 1 verse 22, Since you have an obedience for the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And I love that. That this is part of the purpose, not the only purpose, of obeying the truth, of obeying the gospel, was that we would sincerely love one another. We honor all people, but we are to prefer God's people. We choose and cherish them. We express interest in them, and we derive pleasure from them. We stick with them, and we have their back. We are committed to them. We are devoted to them. We practice what 1 Corinthians 13 says, that love is patient. We are patient with the brotherhood. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you love more your brothers and sisters in Christ or your lost friends? This is essential as we have disagreements over what the Bible teaches. It's essential as we struggle with how are we to obey Christ in this world? As we ask these questions, we are to be drawing toward one another. Knowing the love that the Father has lavished on each one of us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, pressure from society exposes the beauty of Christ in the way that we love one another. The world's slander must not splinter us, but draw us together. Our loyalty to our fellow pilgrims, our sojourners, must exceed that to our ethnicity. It must exceed that loyalty to our political parties. It must exceed our loyalty to our theological camps. Because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions. Our brothers and sisters must know that we love them. 
We are to honor all people, but we're to love the brotherhood. Then Peter continues, we are to fear God. Peter, and he's just bringing up themes he's already talked about. He already told us in chapter 1, verse 17. He's already directed us to fear God. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. We've talked about this fear. It's not a a hopeless, craven fear. It's not a shaking in our boots fear. It's a fear that we have of God as father. A father, and it describes in those verses there, who willingly purchased us with the blood of his own son. A father who sent his son, verse 20 says of chapter 1, for our sake. A father who has given us reason to put our hope and our faith in him. This is a confident fear, but it's a fear that also takes our father seriously. That he impartially judges according to each one's work. There's only one we fear. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but aren't able to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We are to fear God alone and not those around us. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us and pursuing his worship on the day of visitation, seeking more disciples for him, will put us in conflict that those that we are seeking to honor It will put us in conflict, no matter how kind we are to them. When you tell someone that they have disobeyed God's law and that the punishment for that sin is eternal judgment and that the only way to be rescued is through faith in Christ alone, you will be put in conflict. So we must fear God. We must obey God rather than men, as Peter said in the book book of Acts. See, this fear of God provides the context for our lives as submissive citizens. His evaluation is why we obey man-made laws. It's why we honor all men. It's why we submit to man-made systems. But it's also why we take seriously the command that he's given to make disciples, and any command he's given, regardless of what society deems appropriate. So we do honor all men, but our allegiance is to God who will call us to count for the talents that he's given us, for the time and treasures that he's given us as we sang about earlier. This is why we take seriously the commands he's given us. So when we seek to obey his commands in 21st century America, trying to figure out how we are to do this with all of these freedoms... We do so with an eye to his eye, with a heart for his pleasure, eager for his evaluation, and not dreading it. Because he's made us new creatures in Christ, because we're slaves. Peter finishes the four phrases here by saying, honor the king. We're to fear God, but not the king. We're only to honor the king, but we are to honor the king. In Peter's context, the king was Nero, who not soon after he's writing this would, would burn Christians as lanterns, who would crucify Peter, behead Paul, as church history tells us. In our country, the king is President Trump. 
It is the Supreme Court. It's Congress. I learned something about government there. We don't fear any of these because our heart is owned by a greater fear, by a good fear, by our Father in heaven. See, this world is just the place we live. We're tourists here. We're exchange students. It's not our home. I uh, love how that sense of that was brought out in last week's message from Jeremiah. It doesn't matter what country we go to. We really shouldn't be loving living that differently. I would love to have an opportunity to, to speak to that speaker and say, so what you encourage saints to do in that country, how do we do that in our workplaces here? Because it's hard. Right? But, but, but we're sojourners. We're, we're, we're aliens wherever we are. When a child spends the night away at, at, at a friend's house, maybe a relative's house, he fears his parents more than the authorities where he's staying, right? Because that kid knows, ultimately, what are these people going to do to me? They're not my parents. But my parents are going to ask when they come and, and pick me up the next morning, well, did you listen well? Did you eat too many snacks? Did you go to bed? His healthy fear of his parents and of consequences is what keeps him in line. We honor the king, but we fear our God. Whether that is Emperor Nero, crazy, maniacal, mother-killing, Christian-killing emperor, or President Trump, or Governor Newsom, senators, Republicans, local judges, Supreme Court. It's not just when we stand before them, we're to honor them all the time. Most of these saints in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to were never going to stand before Nero. He was going to. We see some, some, some neat examples of uh, honoring in the book of Acts. Paul stood before before Governor Felix in Acts 24. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to, to, to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. We don't know exactly everything he said there, but, but you can see some of the honor. But that doesn't stop him, though. When, 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 when Felix comes back with his wife and he sends for Paul and heard him, and this is verse 24 and 25 of Acts 24, heard him speak, of, speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away, for the, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. So we see a great example of Paul speaking with honor, but he didn't shy away from speaking about hard things. Felix wanted him out of his presence. He was fearful after listening to Paul, who had honored him. We, 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 we see the same when, when, when Paul was before King, King Agrippa and Governor Festus in Acts 26. I'm going to read a couple of verses in verses 2 and 3 of how Paul, Paul, Paul honors the king. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. It's just a little picture there, but we see the honor he had before coming before King Agrippa. But he feared God more. Listen to what happens in verses 24 through 29. 
While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus, who, who is the governor who replaced Felix, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad, because he's talking about the resurrection. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. That's Paul talking to the king. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian? He's like, Paul, do you really think this is going to work? And Paul says, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as such as I am except for these chains. I don't want you to be imprisoned, but I want you to believe the gospel. So just such a, a beautiful picture there, speaking with honor. And even being aware of what King Agrippa did hold to be true. And appealing, but also speaking fearing God more. Jesus commanded us to give what's due. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We're to honor men, but to fear God. Paul says in Romans 13, verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Do your, do your co-workers know you as someone who never talks badly about our kings, regardless of who's in office? And we should be far more known as Christians than for our political party. Do your kids see by your respect of those in authority, do your kids see by your respect of those in authority that you respect God who placed those men and women in authority? Scripture doesn't specifically answer every question of what excellent behavior looks like in a representative de de democracy. We have serious questions. If you're on Facebook, you have questions. What should I post? Or what should I repost? Should I exercise free speech by protesting? Is there a right time to march? Should I vote? Should I write letters to politicians? Is that my responsibility? Should I run for office? These are questions that we are confident God has answers in Scripture for. And we go back to thinking about this, the sufficiency of Scripture. What God has clearly commanded you to do, or through, through, through the implications there, you are to do. And what he's not said you must do, you don't have to do. But 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17 does give guidelines for what this excellent behavior in response to the government looks like. It is to be submissive to authorities. It is to do good because you want Christ to be honored, to be known for doing good. To behave excellently because you've been freed from sin and are enslaved by God, happily so. And to respond properly toward everyone. May we be known for obedience to these kind of commands which are made clear to us in Scripture as we submit to our Lord so that those around us, well, as what did Paul just say? 
I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but, all, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And that is our hope, that those who hear the gospel from us would see nothing de-authenticating because of our failure to submit to authorities and honor all men as we live out our lives under the government. Let's pray. Father, for me, uh, and I trust for others among us, this passage is stretching as we are left um, with more potential to be heard by more people, uh, with more venues of free speech than than ever before, uh, pressed into speaking on, uh, having opinions on things which we're not totally informed about, uh, shamed by what we do say and what we don't say, It is a complex uh, age uh, we are kind of thrust into. And our desire is to be pleasing to you. I know that we have much more uh, to examine what your word has to say about speech, about government, your control over government. There's other examples to look at. This is not a fully informed uh, topic on our social responsibilities or our government civil responsibilities but we do want to do justice with this text. So I pray, Father, that as we have new life in Christ, as we are your slaves, that we would take your commands here seriously. I pray, Father, that we would be more concerned about the eternal rather than the temporal. I pray, Father, that we would be bold with your good news so that men would know that we belong to you, so that there would be an opportunity for them to proclaim your excellencies along with us. We pray, Father, that you would be using your word, Lord, to convict where appropriate. Lord, we want to be faithful uh, to honor all. We want to be intensely devoted to our brothers and sisters. We want to fear you in all that we say and do. We want to honor the president and the representatives that you've put over this country. Lord, help us to do this all with a lot of humility, uh, but really embracing our role here as sojourners and as strangers. We want to do good deeds, but we know you have not given us the job here to fix this. This is about proclaiming your excellencies and making you known and making disciples. Yet, Father, we are aware that uh, being your disciples is going to include us um, making choices about voting and, and who to vote for and all kinds of these questions about what we say and what we protest and all kinds of things, Lord. So, Father, we pray for lots of wisdom. We pray that we would take your word seriously. We know that you are going to uh, hold us accountable. And even as we know that we're going to be evaluated by you, we do cling uh, to the sacrifice of your son. Lord, it is so easy uh, uh, to, to be concerned about being right rather than about your glory. We thank you for his sacrifice. We do pray, Father, for those here this morning uh, who are still living as slaves of sin. I pray, Lord, that uh, there would be enough gospel here, enough good news, enough hope in this uh, part about being freed from sin and enslaved to you, um, that they would look and see something that they are missing out on. They would be desirous of this freedom which there is in Christ Jesus. 
Thank you so much for your word that you've given. We know we're, this is nearly 2,000 years after, uh, but your word is still sufficient for us uh, to today. Help us to be people who take your commands seriously so that we would know what you require uh, from your church. In Jesus' name, amen.